Picture this, a global trading corporation making huge profits in a distant foreign land that's known for its fabulous wealth. There's ferocious competition to get a job with the company. Everyone knows that its overseas employees can become unimaginably rich. They return to Britain with exotic servants in tow, build flashy country houses and gain huge power and influence, even buying seats in Parliament. Tasteless nouveau riche? Yes. Corrupt? Mostly. Life-changing? Definitely. So, wouldn't you be tempted? I'm Mukti Jane Campion, and this week I'm casting a spotlight on the tens of thousands of British men who travelled to India, lured by exactly such a prospect of power and fortune. Their employer? The English East India Company, founded at the beginning of the 17th century and by the end of the 18th century, the most powerful multinational corporation in the world. Welcome to Departures, a podcast series from the Migration Museum, exploring 400 years of British emigration. Episode 3, The Company Men in India. We are standing now on the river Hooghly, very near a sort of makeshift jetty. This is roughly the spot where ships in the 17th and 18th century coming in by the Hooghly into what has now become Calcutta. This is where they would have come in docked and this is where the writers, clerks, officers of the English East India Company would have landed. Calcutta historian Professor Rudrangshu Mukherjee. So as they came up the river, they would have seen a lot of marshy land, partly forest as well, and very little habitation along the river, except for fishermen. This was not considered a habitable part of Bengal at that point of time. So why would the English East India Company send its men on a perilous six-month journey across 13,000 miles of ocean to live beside a mosquito-infested river in Bengal? To answer that question, we need to go back to the early 17th century, when the first Englishman visited India, then under the rule of the Mughal Emperor Jahangir. They were awestruck by what they found. Here's one account by Edward Terry, a chaplain of the English East India Company, who travelled through India in 1616. The most spacious and fertile monarchy, called by the inhabitants Hindustan, so much abounds in all the necessaries for the use and service of man to feed, clothe and enrich him that it is able to subsist and flourish of itself without the least help of any neighbour, prince or nation. In the 17th century, the Mughal Empire was the most powerful empire on earth and the Mughal emperors were the richest monarchs on earth. This is William Dalrymple, historian and author of many award-winning books on India and the English East India Company. India was then producing about 40% of the world's GDP. And a lot of this money was coming from the textile industry. India was a pre-industrial manufacturing colossus. It made very high-end embroideries and silks and hangings and painted textiles, but it also made the cheapest and the best quality cotton. The most staple commodities of this empire are indigo and cotton wool. Of this cotton wool, they make diverse sorts of white cloth, some coarse, some very fine indeed. Much of the coarser sort of that cloth, they dye into colours 
or else stain in it variety of well-shaped and well-coloured flowers or figures, which are so fixed in the cloth that no water can wash them out. That pretty art of staining or printing and fixing of those variety of colours in that white cloth, the people of Asia have engrossed to themselves, where neighbouring as well as more remote nations bring their monies to fetch them thence. In 1640, the company, they decide to invest all their resources in becoming the shippers of Indian textiles around the world. And it couldn't be better timing. The Mughals are in charge. Shah Jahan's building the Taj Mahal. India is at its uh, economic peak. One of the very few moments in history when India is producing even more than China is. And while India is producing 40% of the world's GDP, England is only producing 7% of the world's GDP. But the company begins to cream off the profits of this trade. Coastal trading posts established by the company, such as Madras, Bombay and Calcutta, begin to thrive. The company agents build successful relationships with local bankers and middlemen in what's a very sophisticated and cosmopolitan commercial environment. The trade is a win-win for everyone. For the Indian textile producers, the Mughal rulers keen on filling their coffers with foreign silver, and of course the great English public, eager to buy the riotously colourful fabrics for furnishing their fashionable homes. Meanwhile, the East India Company's investors are raking in huge profits. But at the beginning of the 18th century, the Mughal Empire in India goes into sharp decline. The situation in India changes very quickly. It's still an economic giant. The producers are still producing all these wonderful textiles. But suddenly, it's moved from being a hugely centralised empire to hundreds of little states, all of which are fighting each other. And at the same time as this happens, by chance, there's a military revolution in Europe. Frederick the Great invents a whole new bag of tricks on the battlefield, muskets, horse artillery, moving field guns very rapidly around a battlefield, and particularly infantry formations with file firing. One lot, you know, kneel down, fire their gun, then they move back, and another lot who've been loading their guns then kneel down and fire. All these little techniques cumulatively mean that quite suddenly a European can quite easily defeat large Indian armies in the battlefield. And this happens almost at the same moment as the Mughal Empire breaks up. How the English East India Company takes advantage of the chaos that ensues is the story that William Dalrymple tells in his most recent book, The Anarchy. First of all, the British and the French, but then the French get knocked out and really just the Brits pick off one by one the different small states that have succeeded to the Mughal Empire. And they work their way quite rapidly from the coasts, particularly in Bengal, and take Delhi in 1803. By 1803, not only have they taken over the Mughal Empire, still not the British government, but this one business operating out of one office block in London, but they built themselves, astonishingly, a private army that's now twice the size of the British army. The British army is 100,000 men before it rearms to fight Napoleon, and the East India Company is 200,000 men in its private army, which is an unprecedented situation. India is taken over, bizarrely, by a company not by the government. Take a moment to let that sink in. A country of around 200 million people is taken over by the private army of a British trading company. But it's not a straightforward case of the British beating the Indians. And the trick that the company pulled off was that they conquered India using credit from Indian bankers to pay for Indian soldiers to conquer India for them. 
So the East India Company armies have this small white elite, but 95% of the soldiers doing the fighting are Indian. The key turning point in this political takeover is the Battle of Plassey in 1757 and involves a certain young East India Company officer from Shropshire called Robert Clive. Now, Clive is later by the Victorians turned into this imperial hero and is called Clive of India. But at the time, Clive is a rather sort of disreputable ex-accountant from his youth, an incredibly violent thug. Clive used to run a protection racket and market Drayton, threatening to break the windows of shopkeepers. In the 1740s, as a very young man, takes this sort of thuggish mentality with him to India. In 1756, Clive is posted near Madras with the East India Company as a lieutenant colonel in charge of three regiments of Royal Artillery. News arrives that there's been an attack on the company's fort in Calcutta by the new Mughal governor of Bengal, the Nawab Siraj Udawla. Tens of British have been taken prisoner and crammed into a tiny cell, the so-called Black Hole of Calcutta, where many have suffocated. So Clive now has an enemy that he can use his his violence on. So he sails straight off to Bengal, retakes Calcutta. While in Calcutta, Clive receives an unexpected offer. A letter arrives for Clive, one that changes the course of history. And the letter has been sent by a banker, a man called the Jagat Sen, who's like the kind of Indian Rothschild. He's made a huge fortune speculating in the textile trade. He's an old ally of the East India Company. He says this Nawab who attacked Calcutta, he's a complete psycho and we need to get rid of him. If you march north and fight him and affect regime change in modern terms, I will pay you personally £2 million and I will pay the East India Company £2 million too. Clive doesn't hesitate. He says, absolutely no problem, sir. Marches north. And what is made out in imperial history books to be a great victory turns out, in fact, to be a complete fraud because uh, the Jagat Set has also bribed the main general on uh, Nawab Siraj of Dalasar. So both the attacking army and the defending army are in the pay of the same banker. The battle is a resounding success. Clive marches into Murshidabad. The old Nawab is captured and killed. And Clive literally helps himself to the treasure. He stuffs its pocket, then with what's left, he fills 10 or 15 boats and sails them down to Calcutta with, full of gold and jewels. And this is not authorised by the East India Company. Later, when Clive is asked to account for his actions in Parliament, he shows no remorse. When I recollect entering the Nawab's treasury at Mashidabad, with heaps of gold and silver to the right and the left, and these crowned with jewels, by God. At this moment, I stand astonished at my own moderation. Overnight, Clive has become one of the richest men in Britain. His victory sets the East India Company on a new path. As its army moves through India, any city that puts up resistance before it's captured is subjected to 24 hours of plunder. So city after city, which opposed the East India Company, and many did, and you know the different Indian powers put up a very strong resistance to the company, one after another were looted. Clive becomes governor of Bengal, then the wealthiest and most productive part of India. The company acquires the right to collect taxes previously paid by the Bengali people to the Nawab. Bengal had quite a sophisticated, I mean, across most of India, there was a sophisticated system of tax collection. Some of the tax would always be saved in order to mitigate any consequences of famine or the crop failures that occur. Gurminda Bambra is Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies at the University of Sussex. 
When the East India Company takes over tax collecting powers, not only does it quintuple the rate of tax that's collected within sort of 25 years, but it also takes the entire revenue that it collects in tax back to Britain. So there is no money available locally to mitigate against the consequences of crop failure. Not only is there no money, but the East India Company has also ordered all grain reserves to have been sold. So in 1770, there are crop failures. It does produce a famine, and the famine is of such a severe consequence that the Governor General of Bengal, Warren Hastings, he himself in his report writes that over 10 million people are killed as a consequence of the famine, which is one in three of the population at the time. And despite that, the amount of money that the East India Company collects in tax increases. And one of the reasons it's able to increase is because they also establish a new sort of rule, which is that even if you die, your village is responsible for the tax that you owed. So as people are dying of starvation, those who have the misfortune to remain alive are further taxed in order to make up the tax. So they actually increase their tax revenues in the time of one of the most extreme famines ever to hit Bengal. And the tax revenue is used in order to fund military expeditions, which then take more land, and that land also has a population, so they can tax that population. The historian Thomas Macaulay later describes the cash cow that India has become. And one of the things that he says, treasure flowed to England in oceans, in the sense that that amount of money was just seen to be an unending stream of wealth for the benefit of those in Britain, even if the wealth didn't necessarily trickle down. The money that came was used to invest in factories, it was used to invest in new enterprises. News of the get-rich opportunities to be had in India quickly spreads back in Britain. Everyone wants a piece of the action. So by the beginning of the 19th century, the scramble to get a company posting is intense. And to equip those fortune seekers setting out for India, exclusive company training schools are established and guidebooks published, such as this one. The East India Vade Mecum, or Complete Guide to Gentlemen Intended for the Civil, Military or Naval Service of the Honourable East India Company, by Captain Thomas Williamson. 1810. The Vade Mecum means go with me. It's used for a handy guide. I think one really intended to be able to fit into a big deep pocket to take with you. Dr Kate Telcher of the University of Roehampton has studied the travel writings of the British in India. It's really written for the young or indeed for the parents of the young who are being sent out so that they can prepare them properly. Instructions to persons proceeding to India regarding articles to be provided and precautions to be adopted. When the East India Company servants, and that could be either people who were in the civil service or in the military service, went out to India, they were probably between 15 to 19 years old. So I think on average around 17 when they arrived in India. They were still very young. I shall now proceed to the display of some minutiae regarding the outfit of a gentleman about to embark in a chartered ship. There's a lot of practical advice about clothing. Four dozen shirts, for instance, of various materials. They ought to be of very fine, stout calico, such as may be used in a hot climate, where linen is particularly prejudicial to health, 
owing to its feeling cold when moist with perspiration. About a dozen of the shirts may be of a rather superior quality and have frills. These kinds of European dress are expensive to purchase in India. Uh, and shoes and boots, all of that would be very pricey. So he's concerned that the young men go out equipped with enough clothing to see them through. He also, and a rather kind of, to me, slightly poignant note says, you know, uh, and if, if you are still growing, make sure that they're large enough for you to grow into. The town of Calcutta, which is estimated at a population of 100,000, whereof not more than 1,000 are British, is situated very advantageously for commerce. In point of commerce, Calcutta may, perhaps, be properly classed with Bristol. The great front given to the town affords numerous facilities for those concerned with shipping. In the late 18th century, when the boats came in up, up the river... Professor Rudrankshu Mukherjee again. And they would probably see a series of magnificent buildings, Palladian facades, and with access to the river. By that time, huge country houses or mansions had come out all along the banks. As the company's agents land in Calcutta, they're approached by a local fixer known as a banyan. He would meet the young man from out from London and he would say, I'm at your service, sir and I can provide you with money, with servants, I'll find a house for you. And so that would be the first step towards an Indo-British partnership as it were. Williamson is trying to warn them against the fact that they will easily be duped when they arrive. He suggests that if they do not have much command of the language or the customs, that they will be tricked and exploited by those around them. What was the language that these company men would have been communicating in? The language of the administration in the East India Company, that was Persian. So that they, they would have been learning Persian. That's for work purposes. They may also have been tutored in Hindustani. If they were hoping to join a merchant house, they would need the local language. So maybe for the first year... The advice was you must really study hard and you must employ a munshi or a teacher to teach you. And the promise was that, of course, if he could get a good linguistic grounding, then on that basis, he could then start to earn a fortune. On arrival in India, young men move into hostels called chummeries or in Calcutta into what's known as the writer's building. It's a huge red building with a magnificent facade and this is it's called writers building because the clerks of the English East India Company were called writers and this is where they actually lived it was a very congested building and with small tiny rooms and it remains like that it, it was not an easy life and there was a lot of boredom most of the young people came out here had very little to do once the work was finished and there's one classic description of how these officers at dinner table to just get rid of their boredom took to chucking bread pellets at each other and it became so bad that actually an order had to be passed that the chucking of bread pellets was henceforward banned so that sort of shows the extent of the boredom that they had to endure while they were here. So it's hard to remember just how young and inexperienced they were. And in a sense, little wonder that they lived riotously when they got there. 
especially if their acquaintance is being diminished every month because people are dying. The hazards to life in India are many. Captain Williamson dryly observes the patent lunacy of newly arrived Brits striding out in the midday sun without protection. Nothing can be more preposterous than the significant sneers of gentlemen on their first arrival in India at what they consider effeminacy or luxury. Thus, several may be seen annually walking about without chattas, i.e. umbrellas, during the greatest heats. They affect to be ashamed of requiring aid and endeavour to uphold, by such a display of indifference, the great reliance placed on strength of constitution. This unhappy infatuation rarely exceeds a few days. At the end of that time, sometimes only of a week, nay, I have known the period to be much shorter, we too often are called upon to attend the funeral of the self-deluded victim. They succumbed to cholera, to dysentery, to typhoid. There were particular seasons of the year that were really dangerous. I think it was from April to October, sort of the killing season. And there was actually a gathering at the end of this period called the Reunion in Calcutta, which was those who had survived that season gathered together to show they were still alive. A lot of Englishmen actually followed some of the customs, followed native customs. You know, they would attend noches, the dancing girls and these grand feasts. With respect to dancing, their style of performance is vulgar. The lewd display which renders their performance too indelicate to be described. Tumbling head over heels, walking upon their hands, Catherine wheels, etc., etc. All come on the display afforded for a trifling gratuity. There are all sorts of warnings about how you should not be a dissipated youth. So you shouldn't waste your money drinking excessively, gambling excessively, spending all your money on dancing girls. You should not do these things. But it is very well known that East India Company servants in Calcutta live at this kind of extravagant level and live fast and often die young. Robert Clive, no stranger to excess himself, describes Calcutta as one of the most wicked places in the universe. Flesh and blood cannot bear the temptations which are put in the way of the newly arrived Englishman. Others arrived only a year before have fine houses of their own, ride upon prancing Arabian horses, keep Indian women, drink champagne and claret. A social life exclusive to the English or the British gradually began to develop as the city of Calcutta began to grow. The white town spread and if you have actually an aerial view of this part of the town you will see how beautifully it was laid out with straight avenues lined with trees, a lot of greenery and lovely bungalows and mansions which had gardens and a lot of space. There were clubs and theatres to which only uh, British had access and natives didn't have access. There's not a lot of empathy for the local people or cultures. It is a place to live as well as you can and then return home. Two-thirds of them don't come back. Two-thirds of the officers in the civil service don't come back. William Dalrymple again. So joining the East India Company is a massive gamble. 
And the kind of people that join it are people like Clive's family and indeed my own family, provincial gentry who have social aspirations uh, that are not matched by their bank account, shall we say. While jobs in the company are poorly paid, it's the countless opportunities for private trade and tax collection that promise the lucrative gains. If you can get to be a tax collector, you can extort all sorts of extra money out of the people from whom you are collecting taxes. So there's a lot of possibility for corruption. This is something that sometimes concerns the East India Company when there are scandals back home. But there are always lots of illicit ways to make a fortune. And that, of course, is the main reason they're out there. And it's a reason why such postings are so closely guarded through patronage. Who are these people? They have to be fairly well connected in order to get a job, but they have to be desperate enough to take it. So they are vicar's sons from Northern Ireland, Scots who back the wrong side on the Jacobite rebellion, younger sons who haven't inherited anything. They're never the top of the aristocracy, never dukes and lords and earls, nor are they agricultural labourers. They are the well-connected but less wealthy end of the lower gentry. Uh, that's the civil service. The East India Company army, however, is rather like the navy at the time, full of desperados. The mortality rate for the military postings is even higher than for the civil jobs. A four-fifth of the people in the army don't come back. Something not mentioned in the recruitment ads of the time. Wanted. A few spirited men to complete the regiment of artillery and infantry. Daily promotions occur in the native troops in the service of the Honourable Company, affording constant openings to young men of abilities, enterprise and steady conduct. Pensions allowed for length of service. The East India Company army is full of even more desperate folk than the civil service and, and one class down. It's full of Scots and Irish. Why so many Scots and Irish? because they've each been given a specific quota for jobs in the English East India Company. They want to share the spoils of English territorial and mercantile expansion. In the case of the Scots, it's one of the key drivers behind the Act of Union in 1707. It's explicitly mentioned in the provisions that there will be a quota for Scots in the East India Company, which they instantly fill and overfill from that point, from 1707. The Scots form a disproportionately large uh, segment of the East India Company officers. Let's talk about your family connections to the East India Company. How did they come about? So my family are absolutely classic East India Company, well-connected Edinburgh lawyers, but with lots of younger sons who, who had no, no estates to inherit and, uh, and never had enough money for their aspirations. And generation after generation, my family uh, joined the East India Company. They were signatories to the Act of Union. And one of my forebears was even known as the gateway to India, being the, uh, the guy who decides who gets to join the East India Company. My family had come from a, a small place called North Berwick on the coast of southeast of Edinburgh. And all the neighbouring families joined the East India Company through this guy. And many of them made greater fortunes than, than, than we did. <laughs> and do you know what happened to those ancestors who went out to India? In 1757, when Clive is sent north to attack Sarajah Dowla, the first of my family to have gone out there, a guy called Stair Darumpel, has already died in the black hole. He was one of the ones that got suffocated. He has two cousins, one of whom is in the Madras artillery, one of whom is in, uh, in another South Indian force. One of those guys marries a Mughal princess. 
descended from Nur Jahan's sister. So James Dalrymple, who ends up in Hyderabad, is married to Muti Begum. And so his tomb in Hyderabad has English on the front and has Persian on the back, because his wife was paying for the tomb, I imagine. And so there were lots of Anglo-Indian Dalrymples. We have letters which show that the boys got sent back to Scotland, where they seem to have been successfully integrated back into Scots provincial society. And do you know what happened to the remaining children? Well, they are brought up Shia Muslims and stay in India because, crucially, they are, as their father puts in their will, too dark to escape detection. In other words, they had slightly darker skin colour and that changed their life from being Christians who were literate in English and shipped back to rejoin Scottish society. Instead, they became Shia Muslim soldiers fighting for the East India Company armies in southern India. A hugely different life. And then one of the girls gets widowed and writes to her brother, who's now called Hugh and back in Scotland, asking for money. And there's no reply in the file where this letter is kept, but the fact the letter was filed rather than thrown in the fire, I hope means the money was sent. Listening to you describing your family's experience, I'm struck there must be thousands and thousands of other families in Britain who also experience such mixed marriage and racial segregation, if you like, of the siblings in the same family. But we don't really hear about that, do we? Well, it, it, I mean, it's a, it's a straightforward fact. The East India Company made a law very early on that every officer's will had to be sent back to London, and all these wills survived. And so if you go through those, you find that in the 1780s, one in three British men leaving everything to an Indian woman or to an Anglo-Indian child. One in three. There's not just one or two, partly in the back. It's publicly one third. Presumably there were a million unofficial liaisons that are not recorded uh, on top of that. Beyond these bare statistics lie the very human stories of intermarriage and adoption of local customs that William Dalrymple documents in his earlier book, The White Moguls. Because many of the men who marry Indian women naturally get a taste for food and like smoking water pipes and wear Indian pyjamas. And some of them go the whole hog and get nice curly slippers. Uh, you know, there's a whole range of, of mogul lifestyles that they adopt. And often they don't tell their families this. You know, William Fraser, who's one of the best documented examples uh, in Delhi, had, it was said by his friends, more wives than the king of Persia and one favourite wife. But in his letters, he's saying, oh, I'm saving up and looking forward to marrying a nice Scots girl. Now we know that this is complete nonsense, but he didn't have the gumption to tell his parents that he had this fantastic setup in Delhi and was having the time of his life and had no intention ever of coming home. For the British living a privileged expat life, India is a land of so many possibilities. But for India, the company's legacy is a dark one, crippling its once thriving economy. The real change that the East India Company had was economic because it made vast sums of money. And it was the company, along with the Caribbean slave trade, two fairly dodgy sources of wealth which moved Britain from being a relatively minor player on the European scene to provide the seed funds for the Industrial Revolution. You know, by the end of the East India Company, the, the position of 1599 is reversed. In those days, Britain, or England rather, at that stage, was producing 7% of world GDP and India was producing 40 By 1858, it's more or less the opposite. India's down to single figures and Britain is, is the biggest economy in the world. In 1858, company rule is abolished by the British government and control of India passes to the British crown, so beginning the era of the Raj. 
Emigration from Britain continues for almost another century and includes a much greater variety of people, notably including missionaries and more women. The key thing to remember is always forgotten is that while the Raj dominates our thinking of the British and we think of Kipling and Curzon and all those chaps in, in Solotopies and, and empire building shorts swaggering around, the Raj actually only lasted 90 years, which in Indian terms is a blink in the eye. But the East India Company lasts 250 and is a much longer bit of the, the story. And it's one that we've rather sort of carefully forgotten because it's not one where we can claim that there was any civilizing mission or any re- really positive outcome for India at all. It was, it was a straightforward pillage. You know, looked at from the, from the 21st century, it, it's largely a story of loot. And, and of course, loot itself is an Indian word. It's the Urdu Hindustani for, for plunder, lootna, to plunder. And did some of that plunder come back into your family in Scotland? Unquestionably, although it was tended to be the younger sons that were sent out. So I don't think it's directly financed my lifestyle. It, uh, it would be my cousins and, and relations. But uh, yes, unquestionably, uh, generation after generation, right down to my great-grandfather. We are absolutely the classic profile of an ambitious provincial Scottish family making their way through nefarious goings-on in India. <laughs> Today, many examples of loot from India are on display in stately homes and museums across Britain, such as Powys Castle, former seat of Robert Clive's son, Edward. But much more remains hidden from view. Professor Gurminder Bambra again. Well, there's been quite rightly a lot of attention recently on the amount of money that came out of the slave trade and how that's been used to fund country houses, libraries, public institutions, and so on. And I would say that that's true. And so much more of that money also came via the East India Company. So there is unlikely to be a stately home, an Oxford or Cambridge college, a private school, art institutions that don't have funding from the East India Company. Just because the amount of money that was coming was so extensive, I would suggest that there is no institution within Britain that isn't in some way funded by that wealth. Next time, I'll be continuing the theme of hidden legacies of 18th century British migration when I speak to an English family that's been discovering uncomfortable truths about its ancestral connections to slavery. Join me then. Departures was produced and presented by Mukti Jain Campion. Title music is by Shakira Malkani. Historic readings were by Adrian Prater. The podcast series is a culture-wise production for the Migration Museum and has been supported by the Arts Council England. To find out more about the Migration Museum and current exhibitions, visit the website www.migrationmuseum.org.